This is the first talk in a four-part series on Paul's letter to the Romans by Terry Virgo and is entitled An Exposé of the World. This talk is based on Romans 1, 18-32 and has been made available to you through New Frontiers. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Though rather daunting to find that uh, I'm in Romans 1, the first time I speak to you. One must be one of the most difficult chapters. I'm sure we're all aware that Romans is perhaps one of the most, if not the most important book of the Bible, it could be argued. Luther and Calvin both said it was the gateway to the Bible and a very, very important letter for us to understand. And uh, particularly Romans chapter 1 is a difficult passage. I dare say many of you have never heard anybody preach on it. I don't remember when I last did, or perhaps I do. I'll refer to that later on, but it was an awful long time ago. Romans, obviously, is going to set forth the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps in uh, an unprecedented way like no other epistle. But before he's going to show us the way of salvation, the Apostle Paul wants to set the gospel against the backdrop of our terrible need. And so just briefly to remind you that Paul introduces himself in his opening remarks in chapter 1 that he's uh, an apostle of God, one who has been set apart for the gospel which concerns his son. The gospel is centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the line of David and demonstrated to be son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Certainly he didn't look like son of God with power as he hung on a cross. He looked as though he was a crook and a cheat and a liar as people mocked him and no angels came and he uh, hung there actually overcoming through staying there but not overcoming by suddenly breaking out with angelic power. He triumphed in enduring the cross but now through the resurrection demonstrated to be son of God with power. Before, he looked like son of God in weakness, perhaps. Now, this new day has dawned, as it were. He's now uh, come to the place of authority. He's seated on the throne. He is the Lord. He is the son of God. Remembering that, of course, Paul is writing against the backdrop of a time when uh, the Caesars were regarded as sons of the gods. They were saviors. Uh, Here, Paul is saying, no, I'm going out. Uh, through the gospel, I'm going to every nation, I'm going to the nations, uh, to, because he's received, he says in verse 5, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that's based on faith among the Gentiles. So he's going to make Jesus known. And uh, dropping down to verse 16, the very famous verse, that he's not ashamed of the gospel in spite of it being a message about a crucified man, with all the indignity and utter shame that a cross would ever mean, that Paul says, I'm still not ashamed to go with this uh, amazing message, which is such foolishness to the world, as he tells us in Corinthians, because it's the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes. He's utterly committed and delighted in the power of the gospel. He's experienced it for himself. And in verse 17, he says, For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. 
Now, before he goes on to expound this righteousness, which much of the epistle will uh, set forth, he, he, as it were, steps back and says, look, the righteousness of God has been revealed, and uh, he brings us uh, face to face with this reality, the wrath of God, verse 18, is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Paul is coming with this message which is quite shocking actually when you read or have read for you as we did this morning this passage it's quite a shocking chapter and I'm so glad we were prayed for as we were prayed for uh, had I been praying I would have prayed so similarly that we just need our hearts and minds really open because often even from our own perspective as born-again believers who believe in the word of God as being God-breathed inspired there can come sometimes a kind of reaction within us because we feel, well, is it really that bad? Uh, is this really what the human race is like? Sometimes we might see it. We might hear news coming out of New Orleans at the moment of what happened in that dome. We think, what? What happened? Or what happened at the back of the tsunami when people came to rescue, then others came to steal children and, and to take them into prostitution. You think, what? How can people do such things? And we can think, yes, it's on the borders or the margins of society. Outrageous evil. It shocks us to hear the news that's coming out. And people say they were terrified. There were gangs. And this is overnight. Flood, next day, gross evil, rampant evil. You take away the restraints and evil takes over. But somehow we feel, well, that's on the margins. And Paul is saying, well, no, actually, it's deeply enmeshed in the human character. And it's a hard chapter to get into because there is, even in our own hearts, as we go through the verse, I've found that working on it in preparation. You think, is it really? Is it really like that? And then, yes, as I say, something as recently as the news that's currently filling our newspapers shows us the terrible deprivation of the human race. See, we've come through a time where perhaps, as evangelical Christians, we're delighted to find that God is personal. We heard from our friends from Poland that uh, there are different backgrounds where God is remote and distant. Who can know him? It's possible for us to say, no, God's personal. And therefore, we can sometimes invert and say, well, he's like me. Uh, God's, you know, he's like me writ large, uh, which isn't exactly a very good way of seeing God. <laughs> Certainly in my case, it's not. But especially in a day such as ours where maybe the greatest good is to be tolerant. And we are virtually told, now toleration is the thing that uh, we should uh, extend more than anything. Recently, the elders of my home church, I sat down with the local MP and we were talking about issues related to Brighton, the town I come from. And he said, what I want to know from you people, I don't care what religion you are. I don't care if you're Muslims. I don't care if you're Christians. Are you fundamental about it? Are you, you know, or can you tolerate everybody? And so toleration is uh, the greatest good from the eyes of many. And we can, without realizing, actually be shaped by that. And obviously toleration in the right context, amongst the saints, caring for one another, forgiving one another, of course. But toleration of evil, toleration of things that God hates, somehow can just work into our system. And you read a chapter like this and it shocks you. When you see God's perspective and God's attitude. And it's so important for us to ask God's help that we don't look at it simply philosophically 
about good and evil, but we try to find more about the God we love and serve, who has personality, who has preferences, things he loves, things he hates. He is truly personal, but he's not just a reflection of how your personality has been shaped, maybe much by our modern culture. So we're speaking here in my first heading of man's terrible plight. It's very easy to oversimplify Christian salvation, almost emphasizing that God is always forgiving, men are essentially well-meaning, God makes allowances, and uh, in their need they return to him. And it's very easy to, to oversimplify. We can fail to recognize man's thorough disqualification and the need of the great saving act of the cross. It's very easy to make light of the gospel. And uh, we can really miss God's heart and we can really become superficial because the gospel affects the church. And the church can become a superficial place if we haven't allowed its power to arrest us and see ourselves as totally counter-cultural. We are an alternative culture in the world, embracing the authority and attitudes of God. So because of disobedience, man is in serious peril. The wrath of God is over him. So before Paul uh, sets out the gospel and the way of escape, he's saying to us, man is in serious trouble. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, says this, In the New Testament, no one takes sin more seriously than Paul, and nowhere does he treat it more fully than in Romans. The word sin is found 48 times in the book of Romans. That's more than in any of all of the others put together. And the next would be in Hebrews with 25, so 48 times, nearly twice as much as in any other New Testament book. And so Paul is now saying to us, look, the wrath of God is revealed. Not only is the gospel revealed, but the wrath of God is revealed. And the gospel only has meaning, really, against the backdrop of the alternative of facing the wrath of a holy God. If we're not aware of what we need to be saved from, there's little uh, reason for offering a way of escape. And Paul is not going to slip into that danger. Now, God is not passive in the, in the face of rebellion and sin. He is implacably against evil. Now, that's where often, and we need to pray about it, that's not exactly where we are. We can be angry. We can hear some of the grossest things that happened in New Orleans or happened after the tsunami, and that sometimes that provokes a little anger. But we are rarely really angry about sin. We don't share God's heart as much as it would be wonderful if we did. We will be nearer to God. We think of the Lord Jesus. It says in Hebrews, he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God anointed him with the oil of gladness above his brothers. He hated evil. We need to ask ourselves, do you hate evil? How, how, do you feel angry? Is anger just a thing to avoid? Or is it a thing to be cultivated? We sometimes need the trigger of anger. And sometimes we see anger only as an enemy. But there is a righteous anger in God. We sometimes think of anger as lack of discipline, ugly, something to be avoided, and certainly sinful anger is. But in God, there is a pure, righteous, worship, to be worshipped, holy fury. And it's in God something that should attract us in terms of it's, it is him on display. It's who he is. He's angry with sin. He hates sin. 
And often we say, Lord, please would you, I want to pray. Help me to know you better. Help me to understand you more fully. I am of the earth, earthy. I'm born of this culture. I've been trained in this culture from the 60s on. Anything will do. And that can come right into the church. And we need to say, God, I, I want to know you. I want to know what you're like. I want to feel what Jeremiah felt when he said, I wept tears. I cried out for my people. And I don't want to live superficially. I want to know this God. And this God cares profoundly about things. And so there's a, the wrath of God is revealed. God himself is involved. Now, some have tried to step back. We heard hints of this last evening. In fact, we heard some excellent exposition here last evening. But in our, our own culture, and it's not uh, so recent really, uh, people have tried to stand back from what seems like, well, this, this God that this kind of gets angry. Who is this God? Instead of saying, no, if that's what the Bible says he is, let's press in to know him rather than back off and make our assessments. And so theologians uh, such as C.H. Dodd tried to depersonalize wrath. It's true to say, actually, that the wrath of God is not a frequently used phrase in the New Testament. Often it's just restricted to wrath. The wrath of God we have here, other places you'll find even in Romans, it's just wrath. And so Dodd and others have tried to say, well, see, don't make it so personal. It's just, it's like the inevitable outcome. You do evil, bad comes. It's like a, a, a process. There's nothing personal behind it. And to be honest, that is not looking straight at Scripture. He sees wrath as inappropriate in God. He sees it as in terms of cause and effect. And he writes this, sin is the cause, disaster the effect. He says, it is not to describe an attitude of God to man, but to describe an inevitable process of cause and effect in a moral universe. He's just saying it's a process. Whereas the Bible wants the person of God to come through and say, no, no, it's God we have to deal with. Not just a process, not just culture, not just the way things work out. A.M. Hunter says this, The truth is that we dislike the phrase because we have sentimentalized our conception of God in a quite unbiblical way. Wrath, the strong and continuous reaction of the holy God against every evil in every shape and form, a wrath operative now and not only in the last judgment, is an essential part of any truly biblical idea of God. Now you'll find similar really helpful statements in such books as the one that Vaughan recommended to us last night, The Cross of Christ, or J.I. Packer's Knowing God. They're dealt with superbly in those books. And it's important for us as evangelical believers to know where we stand on these issues. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, says, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is in contradiction to his holiness. Just read that again. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. And Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer says simply, anyone who is unwilling to speak of the wrath of God does not understand the Christian faith. Right, so we just need to see these truths in the context here of Romans 1. God so 
is not letting uh, sin have its own outworking and consequences. God is active. We'll come more to that in a moment. But notice this too, that here in Romans, wrath is revealed in the context of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is where Paul is dealing with this issue, and uh, we're going to find that this is a, a book of chapter after chapter of the mercy, kindness, grace of God. It's in that context that wrath is being discussed, and of course, the greatest display and demonstration of the wrath of God is in the cross of our Lord Jesus himself. God's love manifests the extraordinary mystery. We have to acknowledge it's a mystery. The cross is a huge mystery. I just read the latest, uh, I think one of the most recent IVP books on the cross from a distance, looking through Mark's gospel, a magnificent book I'd encourage you to get hold of. the The cross is huge mystery in terms of the Trinity and all that took place at the cross, but there God's love and God's wrath are set forth in terrible light and glory. So wrath is something that will ultimately be revealed at the end. What an awesome statement that was last night of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. What word do you have? Flee from the wrath to come. What a phenomenal thing for a man to say at the end of his life. That's the thing that was conscious in his heart and mind. And Romans 2.5 talks about storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You know, you don't get paid till the end of the month. My poor student son starts work as a teacher. I think today he starts teaching. But he won't get paid till the end of the month. Dad, they won't give me any money till the end of the month. And uh, it doesn't, at the end of the day, they don't say, here, well, this is what you earn today. This is what you earn today. No, no, no. They'll store it up and give it to him at the end. And people can often think, well, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Where is this God? And the Bible says we're storing up wrath. It will come. There's a day of wrath. But here Paul is saying it's being revealed from heaven. It's happening in the present. It says that man has suppressed the truth, right? Verses 19 and 20, because that which is known about God, excuse me, I'm reading from the NASB, you may find verses occasionally different. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Now that's the Bible's perspective. We're going to look at this more closely, but it's very important for you and me to submit ourselves to Scripture. So, well, this is what the Bible says is true. Okay, so it's saying here, in nature, we see something of nature's God. He's so made the universe that we are responsible beings. God has given revelation in nature, but Paul is saying people have rejected the revelation that has come. We can think of famous verses like Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. The heavens are declaring it. The heavens are speaking. They're saying there's a God. There's a God of design. There's a God of beauty. There's a God of order. They are speaking. That's the Bible's own assessment. That's Paul's assessment. God has left... Uh, John Murray says, God has left the imprints of his glory on his handiwork and his glory is manifest to all. 
There's enough there to make us accountable. Now, when we say we know God through creation, we're not talking about a saving knowledge of God. It's not like John 17, 3, this is eternal life to know God. We're not saying, I see the stars, now I know there is a God. I have, there's a trinity. There's, no, no, no. There's enough there to make us responsible people. That's what the Bible is teaching us. God has revealed of enough of himself for the Gentiles to be blameworthy. Now later on in chapter 2, he'll start addressing the Jews with their privileges of having the law and the prophets, etc. But here in chapter 1, he's particularly talking about the Gentiles, the far-off nations. That There's enough for us to have an attitude of submission. I was reading an article in the Times early yesterday morning of a uh, there's a column in there, a very arrogant anti-creation column. And it's almost despising how foolish, how could anybody ever believe in a God who created? And that is, of course, the norm for us today. But uh, God, uh, Paul is saying here in this passage, no, there's enough there for us to see that there is a God. He says, but, sadly, men neither honored him nor thanked him, verses 21 to 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their futile heart was darkened. Failure to honor and glorify God as God or give thanks. It's interesting, isn't it, that that's the first step down of this terrible downward spiral that Romans 1 is. It finishes up in the gutter, but it begins with this downward step. They didn't honor him or give thanks. Simple downward step. Didn't thank, didn't say thank you, didn't express appreciation. In great contrast to the believers who should be abounding in thanksgiving. This is the will of God, that you give thanks. This, is, this should be actually one of the things that most makes you different at work, at college, at the long bus queue. That people are given to grumbling and complaining. The saints are given to giving thanks. And not giving thanks was the first downward step that ends up in terrible evil. But here they did not give thanks. And interestingly, in great contrast to Abraham, who's introduced in Romans 4 as the father of all who believe... He's the beginning of God's new plan to raise up a believing generation instead of sons of disobedience. And what it says about Abraham is that when God spoke to him, an amazing thing, almost incomprehensible, it says he grew strong in faith as he gave thanks and glory and honor to God. The very thing that Romans 1 says the human race didn't do, Abraham was characterized as honoring God and grew in faith, grew in faith and trust towards God. Now, it's interesting to notice, and if you ever see, uh, and it's an old book now, but um, Francis Schaeffer's book called Death in the City. It's a very interesting book. And he compares Paul's writings with Jeremiah. And what he says, his thesis really is that if you like, Romans 1 is Paul's philosophy of history. If you like, he's talking about Adam, what Adam knew, what the, what the earliest people knew. There's a God that we should be thanking. But then if you, go, you can then do that again in Israel, the nation of Israel, who they knew God, that God brought them out, brought them through, and yet though they knew God, they did not honor him, but they themselves became futile and started making a golden calf and other things. 
Or, as Schaefer goes on to say, talking about us living in a post-Christian age, particularly, if you like, in the West, he's saying, our forefathers. If you like, people living in an earlier century where this nation would have been God-honoring vastly. And Christendom was the backdrop. No longer it is. But there came a moment, and he says this is a recurring theme, if you like. Adam turned away. The, the human race turned away. They knew God. They didn't give thanks. didn't honor him. Then the Jewish nation, God spoke to them. They experienced Sinai, thundering. God saying, you're my covenant people. Here are my Ten Commandments. You're my special chosen treasure. They come into relationship with him, but then after a season, turning from him, making golden calves. So you'll find the feel of Romans 1, when it says they served the creature rather than the creator, and four-footed things. You think, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Jeremiah complaining to Israel that they did exactly the same. And of course it's happening in our generation, turning their back on God. We'll see from this passage, there's never left a vacuum. Other things start pressing through as we do that. So Jeremiah 2, for instance, verse 5, they walked after their emptiness and became empty. So that's what Paul is saying. They became futile. They didn't honor God. They're They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Thinking they were getting more light, they were stepping into the dark. Adam was tempted. You can be as God. You can know. That's the ultimate temptation. You can be as God. You don't have to submit to God. You can know. You can say what's right and wrong. You You can rule the world. You can be in charge, as Harry Seacombe used to sing. If I ruled the world, we'd be in a mess by Wednesday. <laughs> you know, that's the human, if I ruled, I did it my way. I'm in charge. That's the human. Did you know, I heard recently that um, the most requested song now at funerals in the UK, to be played at funerals in the UK, is, yes, you've guessed it, I did it my way. That's the song that people want. It's the most recorded song of any people. Adam could have sung that as he walked out of the Garden of Eden. I did it my way. That's, that's the whole root of sin. We do it our way. We will be as God. We'll make the choices. I can be as God. I don't need anybody to tell me. That was the whole snare of the temptation that was offered. But So idolatry, as he goes on, is essentially futile. John Murray says in his commentary, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there's an absence of the true, there's always the presence of the false. So turning his mind away from the real God, he began to worship, what should we make? Oh, a golden calf. You remember the story. Moses is gone. We don't know what's happened to this Moses. Aaron, the gold in, we will make a God after our own likeness or our own preference. You can be like that. So I can imagine Aaron's got the, you know, the tools and there's the gold. How do you like it? You like this here? No, you don't like that? Oh, take that off. I don't like that. Anything else you don't like? Oh, that could, how, how, is this okay? Is this how you'd like God? Only thing is you have to carry those kind of gods. They don't carry you anywhere. We can be like that. So, well, I don't like that doctrine. It's a bit costly. Can we just take, oh, okay, we take that off? Well, that, that's rather a 
not very honouring of the human race. That's rather saying that we'll mm, take that bit off. And so we come up with, how do you like this one? Now, Paul is saying that's what the human race has done, but even as Christians, we can be vulnerable to that, where people have their preferences. I don't like to think of Jesus like that. My Jesus wouldn't do a thing like that. I sometimes quoted scriptures to people, and they say, my Jesus wouldn't do that. I think, um, I just read it from the Bible. So your Jesus is something you've made. I want to know the real one, don't you? To know him is eternal life. And sometimes he's scary and he's not what we expect. C.S. Lewis, he's not a tame lion. We need to know him as he really is. And that sometimes shakes individuals. Often it needs to shake the church a bit more. Why do you do that in your church? Well, um, we've always done it. Oh, I see. Is it the way God wants it? Does it what, so, is that how it says it should be done in the Bible? Yeah, but if we did that... Oh, I see. Oh, I see you've got a different principle then. You work to what's comfortable. You don't submit yourself to the whole thing then. Well, be reasonable, haven't you? I don't want to do that. I don't want to raise a family that does that. I want to say, Lord, whatever your word says, I want to do it your way. And so we, 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 we need to say, God, help us in this. Because it's in the fallen man, but it can creep into us. And so Paul is saying idolatry is essentially futile. They attempted to be wise, they made fools of themselves. And you've all read Isaiah, where, where actually God, through his prophet, is mocking them. He's saying, you take a piece of wood, you cut it in half, you burn half to keep yourself warm, you burn the other, or you take the other half, and you bow down and worship. I mean, crazy. And so Paul is saying, it's futile. Their minds have become futile. It's empty. Douglas Moo, in his very good commentary on Romans, says, in, this, in that this becoming foolish involves the various idolatrous religions that people invent for themselves, verse 23, Paul's estimation of non-Christian religions also becomes clear in this verse. Far from being a preparatory stage in the human quest for God, these religions represent a descent from truth and are evidence of man's deepest corruption. See, sometimes people can go on missionary endeavor, they meet something, they meet a situation, oh, there's some religion here, and so on. Now, Paul is saying, and Moo is arguing his case, that, that you know, it's not that this false religion is a helpful step to the light. He said, no, it's a step into the dark. It's a step into the dark. Paul's description of the fall into idolatry is reminiscent of several Old Testament texts, Particularly Psalm 106, verse 20, they exchanged their glory for the likeness of a bull that eats grass. Happened in Israel's day, and Paul's saying it's written over the human race. They neither honored him or thanked him. Fourthly, God abandoned them or handed them over. You'll find that phrase three times, verse 24, 26, and 28. And the, verse, the word therefore is saying in view of the human race's adject uh, turning its back on God, God again took action. He handed them over. He handed them over. Verse 24, 26, 28. You'll see that phrase is recurring. Now again, C.H. Dodd, uh, consistent with the earlier things, so he, would, he won't own that as it were. 
and stands back from that. He, uh, he thinks the handing over is more the outward, outworking of the natural process of history. Not, but the phrase hand over demands that we see God as having an active role, as the initiator of the process. Again, Leon Morris says, the verb gave them over shows that God is active, not passive in the process. God is in all of life. He does not contract out. So God is seeing the human race, refusing to honor him, respect him, reverence him, give thanks to him, choosing instead to look at the creatures that God has made and say, well, let's make a God. Let's make one like a calf. And it says that God gave them over. And uh, those three phrases you'll find in those three verses I've referred to. Now, Paul describes... It goes on from this part to describe a lifestyle that's horrific. And I don't really want to uh, spend time looking at phrase upon phrase with you. But he's talking about horrors of lifestyle. Now you might say, well, the human race isn't all like this. My neighbours aren't like this. I mean, they're quite nice people. Got two cars and he's a doctor, I think. And they're quite nice people. What Paul, I believe, is describing here is a, a, a broad sweep of, of the culture of his day and of the human race, broadly speaking. He's not saying that every person outside of Christ lives like this. He's not saying that. They may be capable of living like this, but it is also true, and the commentaries will tell you, that the Greek lifestyle at Paul's day, in Paul's day had all of these things in it. All the things that Paul goes on to describe. Leon Morris says that he was writing from Corinth where more than a thousand sacred prostitutes were said to be attached to one large temple. One large temple, a thousand sacred prostitutes. And so evil was rampant in Paul's day. Absolutely rampant. What he's describing was actually happening in his generation. And then, as I say, what we've seen in our newspapers recently, you can hardly believe the things that take place when the lid comes off, when authority is removed. And remember that God, or at least Paul says in the passage later, that those who handle authority, judges and uh, uh, those who keep order, hold the sword, they are representing God's wrath. And and God, in his mercy, also is holding society in check. So suddenly you get thousands of people without any authority. I'm told, I haven't read all the reports because I was out of the country and I just got back in. But I'm hearing bits and catching up. And it says some of the police would not go in. They were so scared because evil so quickly came to the surface. And that's a town, New Orleans. I went there. I'm a jazz fan. I went to New Orleans years ago. And, uh, you know, you can think, oh, this is fun, this is fun. But under the surface, actually, a lot of evil. A lot of evil. And quickly came to the surface. There it is. This horrible list of evils. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And God gave them over. God gave them up. Douglas Moo says, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to punishment that his crime has earned. God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Now, this is a very difficult concept for us 
to get hold of. That one of the ways in which the wrath of God is being revealed is that there are times when God stands back. He hands over. He says, if that's the course you're going on, he hands them over. Now that phrase, hand over, is a phrase you'll find often in the Old Testament. You'll find it's usually used when God hands over, as it were, the enemies to his people. That's the most frequent way in which it's used. So Israel's going into battle and God hands over. You'll find the same phrase in the Greek, the Septuagint translation, God handed them over. There's a sense in which God is acting. God is saying, right, I hand over. When David was asked, when he numbered Israel, remember David numbered Israel, God said, I'm going to judge you. And he almost gave him choices. You know, which judgment would you like? Would you like this or this? Or would you like to be handed over to men? And David said, no, 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 don't let me hand, be handed over to men. Because I know, I know that will be the worst of all, the cruelty. And yet that's the very phrase that's used. And when we think of the word hand over, that's exactly what's written about the Lord Jesus and the cross. He was handed over. And you'll find in Mark's gospel that Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man will be handed over to cruel men. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. That's part of the outworking of God's wrath. If you saw the Passion movie, I know some people would choose not to see it because of its brutality. But if you see it and you think, what is, what is this? These evil men. The Bible says he wasn't just handed over. He was handed over to evil men. There's a, God handed him over. And here, yeah, God has authority. And, and on the cross, he hands over his son to his holy, pure wrath that we might be saved. But sinful men left to themselves would be ultimately handed over. I know for myself, well, I mentioned earlier that I've never heard anybody preach through Romans 1. I was once at uh, Westminster Chapel when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. And uh, actually he was preaching through Acts, but as often was his way, he found his way from there and uh, was in Romans 1. And it was the first time I'd ever had brought to my attention these three phrases, God gave them over. And it was one of those times, and certainly the doctor, I think, probably was the greatest preacher of his generation. It was utterly fearful. And I sat there with the many, many hundreds that gathered to hear him preach week by week. And he preached this thunderous word, God gave them over. And I remember, because you always had to sing the last hymn at the chapel. So we stood dutifully and sang the last hymn. And then we sat down, as was his habit, he disappeared off the back, and no one moved for ages. I think maybe the nearest I've ever been to something like authentic revival, the fear of God was tangible. As we lived with the reality of this verse, and he said, this is what hell will ultimately be. God gave them over. God will never speak to them again. No more opportunity to hear him. Hell will be that. God ultimately giving them over. No more word, no more opportunity. And it was a moment of frightening seriousness. And here we find then that God in seasons has allowed society just to run. 
So well, that's what it produces. That's what you go that way. That's where you're going to go. And God, in His wisdom, which, if you like, He doesn't explain here, is maybe giving us opportunity to see the grossness of evil. I saw an article in the paper recently. Someone saying, "You may not believe in God, but can you explain evil?" Evil is a. Why? Where did evil come from? It's gross, gross evil. And God, maybe here, in, in this time, is giving opportunity. Even as he gives people over, he's allowed, letting us say, wow, the wickedness of man. Maybe it's a, more of a, a wake-up call than we realize. Then going on quickly, sorry, our time is rushing away. Paul talks about going on to degrading passions. He begins to speak about homosexuality and the failure of normal relationships John Murray says the stress falls upon the unnatural character of the vice the implication is that however grievous is fornication or adultery the desecration involved in homosexuality is on a lower plane of degeneracy it is unnatural and therefore evinces a perversion more basic The offense of homosexuality is the abandonment of the divinely constituted order in reference to sex. Now, this is hardly a time to give a seminar on homosexuality. Certainly, it's one of the great, great uh, challenges of our generation, increasingly so. I come from Brighton, where our local council puts my taxes towards the Gay Pride March, of which I'm not very proud And since we've been in Brighton, we've built a church of some size, but we've not built anything as big as the Gay Pride March, which has grown and grown and grown. And now Manchester, and now they're talking about a week, not just a day. Yet this, in Paul's writing, is to demonstrate a downward, downward spiral. And it's the unnaturalness that is highlighted just read a magnificent book again called God's Unfaithful Wife in that IVP series where, again, I found it so stirring seeing God's relationship with Israel as his wife, yes, unfaithful wife, and then bring that on into the church and then highlighting magnificently that God made the heavens and the earth, then he made a man and a woman. And it goes from, I was going to say the sublime to the ridiculous, but he goes from the magnificent you know, cosmic, and suddenly, you know, it's Mr. and Mrs. And uh, the, the, the book shows, no, no, this isn't a strange thing. This is somehow mystically right in God's heart. And that marriage is huge, right through to the book of Revelation, where everything is ultimately going to what? Well, the marriage supper of the land, the bridegroom's coming. The whole story of a husband and wife suddenly center stage in this suddenly little domestic scene in Genesis after the heavens, the light, firmament, the stars, and Mr. and Mrs. And somehow God has put in the human race this amazing thing that maybe Ephesians 5, more than anywhere else, says this is a great mystery, Christ and the church. And as this great book builds up more and more and more, the beauty of marriage, the beauty of our relationship, he just for a moment says homosexuality, and you just think, so irrelevant, so Missing it. Now, forgive me if I deal with this so briefly, with a few moments to go. But the point that Paul is making is, it is not normal. It is 
as Murray says, that it is the perversion of things that heightens the degeneracy. And God gave them over to a depraved mind. Their minds became unable to make trustworthy moral judgments. They call good evil. They call evil good. They're filled with all unrighteousness. Now sometimes, beloved, when you hear me making maybe quick rash statements, you're sitting there thinking, oh, that was a bit careful. I'm trying to be true to Scripture. And I, and I just know from my own heart, I need to say, God, help me. Because I think that's because of toleration that is the mark of my day. I can find myself, without realizing it, parking in that space and thinking, what is Paul on about? This Paul, what was he? Some kind of Hebrew? Is it Pharisee? Or do we hold our doctrine of Scripture and say, no, this is God-breathed Scripture. This is God's perspective. This is God's view. This is how God sees it. And I want to encourage you, as you may be quite, some of you are quite young in your Christian faith, I am so grateful that early on my pastor taught me the Bible is the Word of God. It's easy to say that. It's when we hit the difficult passages sometimes and we're bombarded with other values all the time to be honestly true in our heart and not feel out of step with Paul. See, there were, there were moments with John the Baptist's disciples and the, the guys came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, how come the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting but yours aren't? Quite difficult for John's disciples to be more like the Pharisees than they were like Jesus' disciples. They were out of step with Jesus. It's very possible to suddenly find yourself out of step with the Bible in your heart. Now, there's nothing wrong with having good questions or maybe even bad questions. Not bad to have questions. The Psalms are full of, why, Lord? But let's bring them to God. Let's ask God to help us think it through. Let's be full of compassion. I know I'm looking at a very difficult passage with you. Have mercy on me. But don't have mercy on Paul. He has authority. He's set apart for God. He went to heaven. He saw things he's not allowed to speak of. I'm not going to argue with him. He is God commissioned. His perspective is accurate. And so that's how we're to see it. And I know even for myself, having spent some hours in this chapter preparing for you, I find it tugs at my heart. And I think, Lord, help me. Please help me to line up with truth. Because I know that's the place to be. And then last of all, knowledge of God's judgment fails to prevent mutual approval of sinning. It's a rather long sentence. Uh, what I'm highlighting as I, I'm jumping down here, I'm not looking at every word, unrighteousness, wickedness. Interestingly enough, Dr. Marty Lloyd-Jones at the very beginning um, says uh, in verse 18 that... Um, they turned against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he distinguishes, and that comes out later in this list as well, that, that he said in his generation, many people wanted to get rid of God, but said we can stay moral. You know, we, we, we're ungodly. We don't need God. But he said they soon found out ungodly means unrighteous. And so many of his generation particularly wanted to say, we don't need the myths about God. We don't need God. We can live moral lives. And uh, humanists said, no, we can, be, we can live good human standards. 
but they were soon overtaken by existentialists and others who said, well, if there's no God, why? Why do we bother? Whose standards? What are you, what, what? And so, yeah, it was kind of short, short term that without God, you can still be righteous. No, 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 not really. Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness because there's only one who's good. And someone came to Jesus and said, good teacher. He said, um, there's only one good. It's God. And so we find here what happens when we turn our back on God. And here, at the end of the passage, it says, although we know, verse 32, although we know, or they, they know, the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. He says there's a sense in which people know that. They know it. There's something in them that knows that. I remember reading a biography of a guy who said, in this, uh, it wasn't a Christian person, he wrote this biography, he said he seduced a woman, took her to bed, had sex with her, went home and cried afterwards. But he said he did it again and again and never cried again. But the first time he did it, he went home and cried that he had done that. Paul says, though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval. I'll just bring to your attention something John Murray says, and I'll close with this. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, says at the end of Romans 1, I've got a spider who's finding my face interesting at the moment. <laughs> Small one, go away. However severe has been the apostle's delineation of the depravity of men, he has reserved for the end the characterization which is the most damning of all. It is that of the consensus of men in the pursuit of iniquity. The most damning condition is not the practice of iniquity, however much that may evidence our abandonment of God and abandonment to sin. It is that together with the practice... There is also the support and encouragement of others in the practice of the same. To put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, we congratulate others in the doing of those things we know that have their issue in damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others and where there is collective, undissenting, approbation we not only do it we congratulate one another certainly for my pre-christian lifestyle i know something about that that what we did together in our drunken state and so on we applauded one another we encouraged and paul and here john murray is saying paul has saved up for the end what is the worst not only we do these things we applaud others Go for it. And people more and more given over to evil. What a tragic, tragic, horrible chapter Romans 1 is. And yet, I hope, giving us insight of God's perspective, giving us serious warning, and I pray that we will want to say, Lord, make me like you. Help me to submit myself to truth. Help us, Lord Jesus, to take advantage of this righteousness that's been revealed from heaven because the wrath of God is revealed. There are seasons and moments when it's revealed particularly, ultimately, the day of wrath. The Bible speaks of, yes, the wrath to come, a horrible, awful day that's coming. Flee 
from that wrath. Let's live a life that is persuaded that God's perspective is correct. This concludes the first of this four-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.